Welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. My name is Talaya Dindi. I'm a cancer thriver, cancer doula, independent patient advocate, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complementary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. You're listening to Navigating Cancer Together, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Dee Dee Hairston. Before I tell you more about Dee Dee, I just want to give you a little bit of information about what we're going to cover today. Dee Dee is not a cancer patient, survivor, or caregiver, but she is here to talk about a very important topic that is closely related to cancer, and that is mental health. I want to share some statistics with you about the mental health of Black and Brown communities. The first thing I want to mention is that for children and teens, Black and Latinx children are about 14% less likely than white youth to receive treatment for their depression. Approximately 50 to 75% of youth in the juvenile system meet the criteria for a mental health disorder. Some statistics for adults in those communities. Individuals identifying as being two or more races, which is about 24.9%, are most likely to report having a mental health disorder within the past year than any other race or ethnic group, followed by American Indian Alaska Natives, that's 22.7%, white is 19%, and black is 16.8%. Also for those adults, Although the rates of depression are lower in Blacks, that's about 24.6%, and Hispanics, 19.6%, than in Whites, which is 34.7%, depression in Blacks and Hispanics is likely to be more disabling and persistent. I'm sharing these statistics with you to really give you a picture of how important it is to talk about mental health and make sure the black and brown communities get the mental health support that they need. The information that I shared with you was from Resources to Recover. Their website is rtor.org. Again, that's rtor.org. I will also have that information in the lesson notes. Now on to Ms. Didi Hairston. Dee Dee Hairston is a mental health advocate who gives a compelling look into life being mentally ill while Black. Unfiltered, dark, and raw, she exposes the stigma and fear associated with mental illness in Black and Brown communities. Dee Dee's mental health advocacy organization is called Diva with Depression. 
I love that name. Dee Dee and her organization's mission is to break the chains of generational shame and trauma regarding mental illness in the black and brown communities, ending the passing down of toxic secrets and the stigma of mental illness. Dee Dee, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you again. It is so wonderful to talk with you again, Didi. And just so the audience knows, I was actually a guest on Didi's podcast as well. That's how Didi and I know each other. And I had to have her on my show as well. Didi, please tell us a little bit about what you've been going through with depression. You've pretty much been experiencing it for most of your life. Please share with us how you arrived at your diagnosis of depression and what that experience looks like for you. The first time that I had a formal diagnosis, I was 16 and the doctor said that I had an ulcer. I was starting an ulcer and had uh, traces of anxiety and depression, but no, it was never followed through. I never went for treatment or anything. It wasn't until after I had my first daughter that I really started to experience the symptoms pretty bad. And so then I started therapy. Uh, when, I, when I had my second daughter, I, I was 31 years old and postpartum with my second daughter was pretty intense. And that sort of kicked off the most severe period of my depression. My first breakdown was in 2006 and I was hospitalized. I want to say that the most horrible (laughs) period is from 2005 to now. Okay. And you share with me in a prior conversation that the type of depression that you have is treatment resistant. Please tell the audience what that means and how it has been for you living with that type of depression. Severe treatment resistant depression, which is TRD or major depressive disorder. Those are the two diagnoses that I have. We didn't arrive at that easily. Like I said, I had my first breakdown in 2006. So that's when my journey with medication because of my illness started. They were giving me everything. I had so many different medications throughout the years and nothing worked or something will work for about six weeks and then it would stop. And the standard period for when they give you a medication and wait to see if it works is six to eight weeks. But I would never, ever react positively to any of those medications. It it took a while. First, they tried to add on the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, then adding on the anxiety and different things like that. I want to say that probably a real diagnosis didn't come until 2018 when I was hospitalized. And that was when the doctor there finally came to the conclusion that I was resistant to the medication. And what that means is there's no cure that's going to work. Not yet. I have to stay positive, but (laughs) there's no cure that works really. Every medication, like I said, I go to the eight weeks. It's a matter of adding on, subtracting. It's really like a crapshoot. I'll give you an example, Talia. I saw my psychiatrist in May of this year and she put me on an additional medication. So there's three that I take, three or four. And here we are in September And there's really no major improvement. So that means that when I have my appointment with her next week, 
we'll have to add or subtract or come up with a new treatment plan. So it's hit or miss. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dee Dee. A couple of questions came up for me when you were sharing that information. The first question that I have is, If you're willing to share, was there a major event or something that triggered your hospitalization in 2018? Yes, I think that I shared this with you when you were on my show. One of my best friends, I have best friends, I call them my sisters. And one of my sisters (laughs) was diagnosed with cancer. And in 2018, she lost her battle with the cancer. And that just, you know, grief is horrible grief on top of the depression is brutal after we lost her and my oldest daughter moved to another state and my youngest daughter was in college and so I was an empty nester I had my depression and then the grief from losing her just piled on and that's what drove me to the hospital in 2018 And the diagnosis then, of course, was the grief and empty nest syndrome. But the cancer and her diagnosis and losing her just tore me apart. That's tough to see someone go through that. And we're going to talk more about what you've seen your friend experience, your sister experience. And I really want to get into that, too, because that's really important as well. And I can see where that can really affect friends and loved ones. That's a tough thing to watch and, of course, go through for anyone. One thing that I want to talk about also is I personally would not have known from our interactions that you were suffering from depression. And I'm sure many people probably say that to you or even to other people that are living with depression. They're like, I didn't know you were having that struggle. So I want to know, Dee Dee. How has that affected your relationships? Oh, wow. It's so funny that someone just asked me to be on their podcast to talk about friendship and mental illness. So it's funny that you asked me that. It definitely puts a strain on your family and friends because they don't know how to react. They don't know how to, number one, accept your diagnosis and number two, deal with the side effects from it. Because when you live with a mental illness, any illness, you can shut yourself off from everything. And you don't want to talk. You don't want to be. You don't want to be with anyone. And not everybody knows how to react to that. I've had family members stop speaking to me because they mm-hmm. didn't like that I couldn't communicate the same way. I've had, I've lost friends. I've lost friends really because they could not deal with what was going on with me. Think about it. You have friends and they want to go out. They want to travel. They want to be with you. And that's not always possible. So I always, I say, listen, I have a few good friends left and those are Mm -hmm. friends that accept me as I am. I have family members that, you know, of course, gossip and, and don't know about what I'm going through. And that sort of behavior towards you, that will make you shut down more. Because Mm -hmm. why would you share with people that don't care or people that don't want to learn about what you're doing? My brothers, I have two brothers and they're amazing and they love me uh, like beyond. (laughs) But it's tough because my older brother, I'm his baby sister. And it was tough for him because he didn't want to see me hurting. 
And his saying all of our lives was he's going to do whatever it took to make his baby sister happy. And he had to accept that he couldn't fix it. And so now, even now, it's still hard for him to manage, although he's learned and my baby brother has learned, but it's still hard for them to see that and feel like they can't help you or fix you. It's such a blessing that you do have those people in your life who accept you for who you are and as you are. And then also they're willing to put in that time, effort and work to understand how to have a relationship with you. It's hard. I tell everybody, I know that it's hard. My friends, my sisters, I call them my sisters. They text me every day to see how I'm doing. My brothers text me every day to see how I'm doing. And if I say that I'm not feeling well, they understand that they don't have to go any further than I'm here. And that's really all that you can ask them to do. My podcast, I know you said we're going to go into this later, but my podcast is called Breaking the Mask of Depression. It actually started out as Behind the Mask of Depression. I came up with the name because when I was giving speeches, I was telling people about what you just said. When I leave the house... I'm one person. When I am speaking at conferences, I'm one person. Even talking to you, I'm one person. But you guys have no idea what goes on when I take off the mask. I want to break the stigma of having to even have to wear that mask. It's your shame. It's hard. It's difficult. Thank you so much for sharing that. I definitely want to get more into that topic. We're, We're talking about relationship. If someone is not sure if them or a loved one are depressed, what are some things they can look out for and pay attention to? I always say that your first step should be your primary care physician because they know you. They have a relationship with you. And that's how my intense journey started. I had a primary care physician and she started to notice the symptoms of depression. I was becoming withdrawn. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was always disheveled, distant, getting lost. She gave me medication for vertigo the Mm -hmm. first time because I was saying that I was off balance. And because I am an introvert, it was harder to say, oh, she's withdrawing herself. And plus I had two kids. So I was always Mm -hmm. out. But I think with withdrawing, not participating in life anymore, and that means socially, you're not going out much, you're not interacting with friends and family. I was at work when I started this. I actually had my breakdown at work and people started to notice that I was disheveled. My medication was making me zonk out sometimes. So that's one thing. Anxiety is a symptom of depression. So if you notice that going into a crowd triggers a panic attack or Something that you're fearful of triggers a panic attack. That's another thing. Not taking care of yourself. And that could include a disheveled look. You're not taking care of your clothes. You're not combing your hair. Your hygiene is suffering. My therapist now, she said that one of the things that therapists look at when you go in for a visit is your clothes. And they notice if you're not maintaining your hygiene. Because that's a sign that you're getting worse. These are all things that you should share with your primary care physician. And there's nothing that you should not share because you never know what's a symptom of your mental illness. Like I said, she diagnosed me with vertical because I was getting lost going to work. A trip that I took, (laughs) I take every day, 
I was getting lost taking a 20 minute trip. I was falling. I was off balance. I couldn't hold on to things. Those things are a symptom of major illnesses, but they were also symptoms of my breakdown and my depression. So start with your primary care physician. There is a test and they call it the DSM-5 and it's 10 questions and you can pull it up on the internet depending on how many yeses you get from that list. That's an indication that you're struggling. So you can use that as a guide also. Didi, thank you so much for sharing that information. Is there anything else that you would like to share about depression or depression awareness? There are so many more resources out there now, Talia, than when I started my journey. I started working with NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. I started working with them in New Jersey, and I am their helpline coordinator here in Charlotte. If you go to their website, they have a wealth of resources Mental Health America is another one that has a wealth of resources. Both of these, they're just two, but on both of these sites, there is also a checklist, so to speak, where you can see if your symptoms are contributing to maybe having a mental illness. Google is my friend. Type into Google and shameless plug, but on my website, I have a whole resource section, which people can go there and look to see if those resources will help. Thank you, Didi. Please tell the audience, number one, your website, how they can get there. Also, the websites of NAMI and Mental Health America. My website is divawithdepression.com. And there is a section called resources. And I believe you're even on there, Talia. <laughs> as I do research and as I meet people and talk to people, I add those resources there. So divawithdepression.com. NAMI is NAMI.org, I believe. And Mental Health America, I think, is another one that's .org. So those two websites are just MHA.org and NAMI.org. Thank you so much. I will make sure to put that information in the list of notes as well. Really mm -hmm. quickly, NAMI, but all of these chapters, all of these resources, they have chapters for different cities. So if you call, and I just use NAMI because I know better about NAMI, but you can type in NAMI and they will give you the chapter information close to you. And then you can call the helpline number for that chapter and they will have more resources available. Thank you so much. I want to circle back around, Didi, to your friend who passed away, unfortunately, from cancer. If you're able to share with us what you saw your friend experience, can you please share how cancer and that whole experience impacted her mental health from what you observed? My sister was one of the peppiest people that I know. I always say that I attract happy people and I'm not happy. <laughs> when I first moved to Charlotte, she was my baby girl's pre-K teacher and just full of life and just talked to everybody, loved everybody. And my girls grew up with her. So as, you know, her auntie and her son, she has a son and I say he's my son. So you saw her go from that peppy person to getting hit with this diagnosis because when she started showing symptoms of her illness, we thought, and she thought that it was 
a female issue, PCOS, because I have PCOS and it mimicked um, what I was going through. And it took a while for them to find that it was cancer. And so it's a shock to the system, as you know, and you don't know what to do with that. What do you do with that? As soon as you hear the C word, you feel like it's a death sentence. That was her initial shock. And by this time, we're still in different states. I was in Jersey and she's in Florida. I always laugh because we take care of each other. We shield each other. And initially her symptoms, she wouldn't let me know because she knew that I would worry all the way over there. And it was always take care of the girls. Don't worry. I'm fine. And so that's how it was initially as it started getting to her. When she first started losing her hair, she just cut it into a cute little haircut and that was fine. It wasn't until it started to get worse that the symptoms were pretty severe. So even when she couldn't talk, we would be on, you know, FaceTime or or, um, video and I would just talk to her as she lay down and it was every day. I called her every single day. Um, it still hurts me until this day that I wasn't there with her. But my girls and I, I think that we all dealt with it differently. It's so hard. It, it really is hard to watch a loved one go through that journey. And so my girls stayed busy and I tried to keep busy and we always tried to stay upbeat. But it started to really hurt us towards the end. I think that they're still dealing with it. Of course, I deal with it. I I can cry at any time as soon as you say her name. (laughs) But it's a struggle. It's a journey. She has two sisters and a a brother. And it just so happened that she got sick at the same time that her father got sick. So her family had to deal with all of that. He passed a couple of weeks before she did. It's a journey. I'm very close to her family. Her sisters and brother are my sisters and brother. I'm still with them. I still go visit them. And although we can talk about her, you know, and joking and laughing and stuff, I know that it hurts. I know that it hurts my youngest daughter. Since she really did grow up with her, there are accomplishments that she's had and was always, oh, Miss Gina would be excited for this or Miss Gina would be excited for that. I tell people all the time, grief never ends because your loved one is gone forever. And so you're grieving forever. Um, Cancer is, I can't say the B word, I won't say it on your show. (laughs) (laughs) I know that you battled with it. I know that you dealt with it. And I just think it, it, it makes me angry at this stage of the game because it's 2023. We shouldn't still be losing people to the C word. And it still bugs me. We have more resources now. Look Mm -hmm. at you. I didn't know about you five years ago. And so her family didn't know about resources like you five years ago. So that's a good thing that there are more resources out there for caregivers and friends and family, but you never recover. Even if your loved one is still here and struggling with it, it's, it's difficult to watch them go through that. Didi, based on your experience with your sister and friend, what advice do you have for people in terms of mental health that are currently living with cancer? The first thing that I will say is it's okay to 
cry. It's okay to break down. It's okay to feel what you feel. It's okay because, it, like I said, it's a difficult thing to watch. But my biggest piece of advice is take care of yourself because you can't take care of someone if you're not doing well. And so that means that you have to continue to eat, get food in, get drink in, take a break. If you're living with the person going through it, you know, try to get out, go away, go walk, go visit somewhere um, because you need to clear your head. And quiet as is kept, that's a good thing for the person also because they're seeing you. Like I said, she was always trying to take care of me. So if she sees me going out and doing things as I normally would, that gives her some peace of mind to know that what they're going through is not hurting their family and friends. They have support groups now, you know, where you can go to these support groups as a caregiver, as a family member, friend, and talk to other people that are going through that. I am one that I hated the support group scene. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> um, I get I, it. <laughs> I couldn't even grasp until I went to one. I went to one called Family to Family. It was an eight-week series that NAMI has. And I can't tell you, Talia, how much it wasn't the information that the teachers were giving us. It was the information that we shared with each other, giving each other hope, sharing, oh, you go to this website and you can get information here. Take advantage of a support group. That way you really aren't alone. I think we know that. I always tell my therapist, I know that logically, but inside you really aren't alone. And so those are my two. Take care of yourself and try to find a support system that will help you go through the process. Oh, let me add a third thing. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest with the person that's going through what they're going through. Don't change the way you interact with that person. If you're laughing and playing with them before, do it again. Still do it sit and watch TV with them. Like I said, I would be on the phone with her talking, even though she wasn't talking back at times, the pain was pretty severe, but I didn't stop. I didn't mm -hmm. stop calling. I didn't stop talking to her. I didn't stop sending her silly jokes. So try to keep it as normal as possible outside of what they're going through. Thank you so much for sharing that. You are such a good sister and friend, such a blessing. And I know she appreciated that. That's one thing that I tell people when someone that they care about has cancer and they feel like helpless, they don't know what to do. I always say, just be a force of presence. And that is what you did. And it's the same with the mental health journey or any illness. Just keep it regular. Just keep going. Great advice. Thank you. That concludes part one of my two-part series with Dee Dee Hairston. Be sure to check back for part two next Wednesday, September 27th. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you for joining us. Please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can easily find my podcast and listen again. Be sure also to check out Navigating Cancer Together on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That is it for this Wednesday. Until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you found it helpful. Please be sure to subscribe, share, and tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you join me for the next episode. Talk to you soon.